Hello fellow homebrewers, JP here, and I want to introduce to you the brand new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Series available at More Beer. More Beer sells the highest standard in homebrewing equipment, and the Brewbuilt Conicals are just that. They're made from mere polished 304 stainless steel, and they come with loads of features that you and I have been looking for. They have a full 2-inch bottom dump valve, which will eliminate your clogging issues, while the sturdy base includes four reinforced legs, just like those big pro tanks do. More Beer also carries the Brewbuilt line of options and add like casters, pressure kits, and even external glycol chillers. So you can find out more about the new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Uni Tanks by going over to morebeer.com for detailed videos on the entire line of Brewbuilt Conicals. You can trust Brewbuilt with your next fermentation, and you can trust More Beer to find the right conical for you. Brewbuilt at morebeer.com. Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Great beer is about drinkability. Doesn't matter the style. You guys are like walking beer Wikipedia. That's the first time that you've ever accepted me as a person. Or you have a fermentation in your gut. I'm jet propelled at all times. (laughs) How many guys do you think that you have the privilege to slap? Somebody who's never tasted a commercial example. And this is how you know everything about this beer? Please, you don't. I think it's bullshit. (laughs) I think it's bullshit, too. Wow. Are you guys going to arm wrestle? No. No. We're going to teabag fight. You heard of Junkyard Wars? Can I get another high five, Beavis? (laughs) Now, live from the Brewing Network Studios in Northern California, this is the radio program for home brewers, craft brewers, beer lovers, and beer geeks. It's your only source for live beer radio that brings expert brewers together with, well, expert drinkers. This is the radio program with a head on it. This is The Session. Hey, thanks for joining us, everybody. It's The Session. Welcome back. It's another Monday, another great show, but this time it's not about craft beer. No, no, no. We wanted to throw things up for you a little bit here in the dead of summer, and we're going back to our homebrewing roots. We're going to talk a little bit of homebrew power, homebrew knowledge, homebrew experience, and there's really nobody better to talk about that than Mr. John Palmer. John Palmer, welcome to the session, young man. Hello, hello. Thank you. Wow, I thought you were going to introduce somebody else. I was, I was, I was eager. You yeah, know. you're like, who, who is this? I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's been a long time since you've been on the session, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you, man. It's, I've been hearing your voice for the last year while I'm editing Bruce Strong's, and uh-huh. so now it's, it's weird to, to talk to you and then see you respond like live. That's true. You yeah, know? I mean, Zoom, what can you say? Yeah, well, otherwise, I'm just I'm talking to you while you're talking to Jamil on the, the recording of Zoom while I'm while I'm editing. And I'm going, oh, John, right. that was so clever. <laughs> and you don't say anything back. And it hurts my feelings. And then, of course, we're joined by one of my Dr. Homebrew cohorts, Mr. Brian Shar. Hello. How are you this evening? Pretty good, Brian. Pretty good. Thanks for joining us as well. I figured uh, 
I haven't homebrewed in several months, and I don't really know a whole lot about it. And I know Brian Shar doesn't know anything either. So I figured the two of us <laughs> can put our. Uh, well, I thought it'd be good to get like some of these topics we're going to talk about from like a, a beer judge perspective, right? Like we're going to be talking a lot about fermentation design. We're talking mash ton design, and maybe potentially off flavors that can come from those things. And so I feel like at the end user, I think Shar, I think you'll uh, you'll do a good job in you know discussing what these things kind of might translate to. Yeah, th- thanks, man. I'm, I'm consuming some mm. uh, beer right now. and You know, I have not homebrewed for about three years, and I'm hoping yeah. that by the end of this year to uh, maybe start homebrewing again. I think uh. you should. Um, I personally, I, need, I just need to do it. I need to go back to more beer yeah. and just do it. But that Bruzilla from more beer, speaking of more beer, they bring you this show. They bring you every session. Morebeer.com, they have absolutely everything you need to make great beer at home, including... The Bruzilla, which is a one-vessel system. Lift that mash pipe up when you're done. Sparge over it if you want to. If not, you know, you can probably double batch, and you don't have to sparge a lot like the, the yeah. Pico Brew used to be able to do. And there you go. And you're, you're off, to, off to the races, man. The thing is lightning fast. It cleans up easy. Under six hours, you're done. Five gallons. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do yeah. anything. Yeah. That's the way I, I brew I, these days. Yeah. It's easy. I'm, I'm old, yeah. and I don't want to have I don't want to have five gallons I, I can't drink, and I don't want to drink five gallons of something before it gets stale. You know, I right. want to brew yes. a couple of gallons of something, three gallons maybe. Two two sounds real good. I can drink that before I'm bored with it or it gets stale. <laughs> yeah, and I don't have That's to right. do that in like the space of a week or something, right? I can let yeah. that sit for like a few weeks and enjoy it, and then it's done and it's it's gone. You know what we should do then? It sounds like you and I need to do a homebrew trade. That's a really good idea. Where we'll just brew different things. Of course, you know, I'll I have to approve whatever you drink, whatever you brew for me, <laughs> and then uh, maybe we'll just swap them out, and then that way we can like share. Because you're right, I brewed five gallons of beer that again with that stupid mild with Kvike yeast turned mm. out amazing, turned out great. Yeah. And then yeah. Palmer, I know, and actually I got the idea from that um, escarpment the show we did. Yep, the escarpment show, I think. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, talking about all the different variations of Quike and all this kind of whatnot. And I'm like, you know what? I think for some reason, I go, a mild. This would, this would work really well. But, and I guess we'll just jump into, into homebrewing. Um, <laughs> after three or four weeks, the, there started to be this sort of tang. And it wasn't, I don't think it was a contamination. It was more like that sort of sour, tangy, different, almost tart, flavor that i've heard you kvike yeasts can give off uh we've had some on dr homebrew a couple times and they can get it was the same sort of vibe and i don't think it was contamination although mm-hmm. it you know i'm not above that which which uh which variety of quake are you using it was the oh god omega yeast okay that's that's a hornendal I think so. I can't remember. They have like three or four. It was like a blue yeah, package yeah. with a really cute otter on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that yeah. why you bought it? Because it <laughs> I bought it, yeah. It. Well, because this one I think was like, it said it was more fruity. Um, and I thought that would go well. Anyway, it turned out really well. So I wanted to do an ESB with it, but I haven't, I just haven't had the chance to drive out to more beer and get some, some ingredients. So, yeah. I brewed a Munich Dunkel uh, a couple of times this year um, nice. with my, anvil all in one system two mm-hmm. and a half gallon with the little mini torpedo kegs love it nice. got it in more beer 
And uh, yeah, but the I used the the Lalum and uh, Quike uh, Voss strain, I believe. That's um, what it is. Yes, that. that's exactly what it is. I think I don't oh, okay. remember. I don't remember. It's, <laughs> but that one, that know, one man. turned out great. Um, I I fermented that at ninety using a firm wrap, and mm-hmm. um, the uh, so Munich Dunkel ninety degrees Lalman, you know Quike, um, nice and clean, just a beautiful drinking beer. But I only had two and a half gallons, and it was gone. and that's the downside Char, that we're gonna we're gonna go with it's like whenever we brew something good you're like oh man well anyway back to that yeah it's still sitting in my in my fridge yeah not because i got bored with it but like i'm trying not to drink so much and this is very different than when i was 25 or 35 yes yes you're like oh 10 gallons less than i did even like five years ago uh, I drink significantly less. And good, because right. we, we should. We're not built That's to drink correct. as much as, uh, yeah. Speaking of drinking things, what are it's, you guys it's drinking? It's not a competition. No, it's not. Although, if, in your 20s, it is, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're, in your 50s, not so much. <laughs> or you got a serious problem. Yeah, we're both. Uh, Palmer, what are you drinking on, man? You're drinking on something Ton- special, right? T- yeah, tonight, um, I'm drinking the Tomahawk Barrel-Aged Imperial Pastry Stout. That was aged in a Jack Daniels barrel. I brewed this with my friends uh, Sergio, Ignacio, and Juan. Um, of uh, Sergio's from uh, Bogota, South America, um, Colombia, uh, Tomahawk Brewery. Ignacio is from uh, Trente Cinco of Costa Rica, Costa Rica, and um, <laughs> Juan Hamarillo is uh, Jaramillo. I'm boy, I'm slurring today. Uh, he's, he's from a brewery that I can't quite remember in Quito, Ecuador. Oh, and we got together and did this collab brew, um, and barrel aged it. And, uh, uh, another friend, uh, came up from Panama to LA a month or so ago and brought me a couple bottles. And I must say it's fantastic. It's, it's, even though it started out as a pastry stout, the barrel aging and souring has dried it out. Mm-hmm. With not you know, a real aggressive layer uh, layer of sourness to it, so it's it's just a very nice nice drinking beer. That sounds good, man. That sounds really cool. It's a lot of uh, South American influences, I guess. Or yeah, yeah. Well, we yeah we used um, we used cocoa, we used uh, some other spices from the area, which escaped me at the moment. Maybe they're on the bottle. <laughs> Uh, it's in Spanish. Oh, <laughs> man. Just try. Just stumble <laughs> your way through it, man. Agua, aguardiente. Um, That's see. water. So, rich in uh, antiguos aromas. Eh. Okay, so rich of aromas of rum and aguardiente, which is uh, water of life. Okay. Um, you know, South American spirit. Sounds cool to me. Anyway, I'm not really a pastry stout beer. guy, but I, I would I would try that for sure, man. That sounds great. Char, what about you? Before we you know really dig into home brewing, because we don't have any beer to taste, so we got to drink our own stuff. <laughs> I I am drinking a uh, Ghost Town Hazy Pale Ale uh, <sighs> with uh, Nelson uh, Sauvin and Equinot hops. Gross. Uh, I I got this not because it's hazy, but more because, uh, although looking at your reaction, I. Maybe subconsciously, I'm like, hey, I'm going to drink this on the show, and JP is going to just, like, <laughs> yeah. vomit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I just – I love Nelson's Sauvin Hops, and this is, like, a nice, uh, really fresh pale ale. Awesome. Uh, there's, there's 
there's a good. Wait, that's uh, a pale ale. Never mind. Book. I don't want to get into it. Never mind. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> it's it's lighting. Stop and showing it. Else, right? Stop. I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn your video pale. off. There it is. There it is. Hazy pale. Uh, it's like someone dissolved aspirin in lemonade. Um, <laughs> it doesn't taste like that. Good. But yeah, I couldn't believe that. That's how aspirin dissolved in lemonade. Good. Look. Yeah, like an Alka Seltzer, you popped into like a stale old lemonade sitting out for a couple <laughs> yeah, of days for sure. Like something my daughter forgot in the kitchen, and like, oh yeah, I'm just going to pour some Alka Seltzer in there. Uh, I wouldn't actually ever no. do that, uh, but no, the uh, this is super fresh, and uh, you know, I'll give a shout out to Little Marina Market in downtown Martinez. They've got a really big selection of craft beer, and it's mm. usually pretty fresh, so you could get yeah. a lot of stuff. Awesome. I should have gotten a pastry stout. They had several one can pastry stouts. Oh, Didn't man. have to buy the whole four cat four pack. I could have drank that with Palmer. See, I myself am drinking. I'm drinking. This is the only Lagunitas beer that I think I'm gonna ever drink. It's not even a beer. It's uh, their, uh, their hop uh, hoppy uh, refresher. Uh, uh, uh. It's the zero alcohol, essentially like um, hop flavored carbonated water, and it's delicious. Yeah, I can't I've never stop drinking it. They are. Um, I got it at Bevmo. I'm sure. I'm sure they're. Yeah. You know, uh, statewide at least. But um, you know, seven bucks for a four pack. It's cheaper than a lot of beers for a four pack, and it just tastes like candy. Hmm. It's the. I don't know what. I don't know what hops are in it, and I'd be interested to like talk about it because um, I think I heard like to develop it. They were having a hard time until they were adding brewer's yeast to get to, to whatever the yeast does with the hops. Because it's like they use powdered hops uh-huh. and brewer's yeast with water, and that's it. And, like, some minerals. So whatever the yeast is doing to, like, the, even the body or maybe the, just the mouthfeel in general, I don't know. But it's like, it's, it, it's, like um, it's like a lightly candied, fruited, uh, hard seltzer without the alcohol. They're delicious. I love them so much. I drink yeah. a lot of seltzer water, so that would be a nice alternative. <laughs> Me too, but you can't ha- for me, you can't have more than one in a row. You should have the one, and it's a nice, like, yeah. I don't know. Nice change, yeah. It's a nice change, man. It's a nice change. Um, I do see a lot of questions coming over on Facebook. I appreciate that, guys. We'll get to those probably, I don't know, either whenever, probably later. But, uh, Palmer, let's get into a little bit of home brewing information. Sure. sure. Uh, we were going to talk a little bit in the beginning about uh, mash tun design and loudering and stuff like that and, and how that can really, um, you know, either make or break your, your home brewing setup and, and ultimately sure. your satisfaction with home brewing. Right. So right. where do we start with, uh, with home brewing design? You know, I know most of us aren't designing our own mash tons, but I think there's information there that we should be aware of. Yeah. When yeah. shopping for that kind of it's, stuff. It's funny how much homebrewing has changed in the last 30 years, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, man. Used to be you had to make your own mash tun. You didn't have any choice. Yeah. Nowadays, it's so much easier to buy an, an all-in-one system like the Brusilla or the Foundry or Grandfather. You know, I mean, there's there's a bunch of them out there now. Um, but yeah, time was, you know, you had to make your own mash tun out of a, a picnic cooler mm-hmm. or a beverage cooler. And... Um, false bottoms were something that you had to make. This is how Charlie Papazian came up with his bucket in a bucket system, drilling holes in one bucket and laundering in another. Um, but yeah, um, the way you design a mash ton helps your overall efficiency. How much sugar do you get from the mash, from the grain? And, uh, 
today, um, brew in a bag systems have come along in the last 20 years. And that steps away from a lot of the mash tun considerations because you're simply mashing in a container, lifting out the grain in a bag and leaving all the work behind. Kind of a no sparge set up, or you can sparge a little bit if you want, and we'll talk about sparging more in a minute. Uh, but um, I think we've, it, when I was first homebrewing, we talked, we worried a lot about efficiency Right. And how to extract the sugars from the mash because we have, would have like a single slotted pipe in the bottom of the cooler or just a, <laughs> a, a screen over the end of the tube stuck in there. And efficiency was generally pretty low, like 60%, um, which, isn't, which isn't great. 80 to 90% is better. Um, <laughs> as you move to a false bottom system, then you can get like the 90% efficiency where, you know, all of the wort is coming out of the grain bed. You sparge uniformly, you, you know, and drain off, you know, you rinse the grain bed and drain off more wort. And yeah, you're approaching 90% efficiency or almost, almost laboratory, you know, type efficiencies. Um, the trade-off though, is when you aim for such high efficiency with, you know, multiple rinses of the grain bed, then you start running the risk of astringency from the grain husks. So there is this, this balance on how much efficiency you shoot for, you know, in terms of money versus quality of the wort. Yeah. And I do remember uh, when we, when I was working at Morbier years ago, uh, you know, sort of making some of those pipe manifold style false bottoms for lack of a better term, right? The manifolds. And there was a big, um, I think he was even talking about NHC a couple of times, like how, how much your, your runoff speed and your sparge speed varied right. in your, in your gravity and how much sugars you were extracting because you can get dead zones. If you're pulling too much water out, you're, you're missing the back corners Right of that, right. and maybe if you're even going slow, because you have to really make sure all your corners are covered. That's why a false bottom was always inherently the best way to go. That's but, right. But back then they were so expensive. So, and like you're saying, homebrewing has sort of changed. I I think, uh, even though I'm sort of outside looking in now, but it's it's no longer about how to save as much money as possible. And that's how right. like you just would always get people into the hobby, like. Oh, do you know how much money that you could save? You just go to Home Depot and get a bunch of copper, and you know already now that's like fifty bucks. <laughs> like, okay, well, yeah. what am I going to do now? I don't. I just, I just have copper. I don't have anything else. So now it's more about the enjoyment and brewing the beers that you want. And I think that honestly sort of mirrors the the craft movement as well. It yeah. was about oh, yeah. you know, support your local craft brewery or uh, you know, independent is better and, and all this kind of you know fun stuff. And then now it's just like, well, what beer is good? And I think it's sort of like right. the same transition where everything has its own like you know backstory and its own arc, its own character arc. So now I think mm -hmm. the arc of home brewing is it's just enjoyment. Prices are yeah. lower a little bit on equipment, but I I don't where I don't hear people trying to really go super cheap anymore. Right, because they we still do sort of chase extraction. Like when I first tried to brew on the Brusilla, I was worried because again I hadn't brewed up until then for a couple of years uh, on like an actual system even longer than that. I was brewing the Zymatic, and then I just didn't really care. But 
It's like, what's my efficiency going to be? I've never, I've never brewed on this before. I have no idea. I can't, I don't know. It doesn't have its own software to tell me what to do. Mm. And uh, ultimately I think it was just fine. It doesn't really matter. You know, I use Beersmith and, uh, and they have a calculation for it and everything's like, oh, why didn't I do this before? Yeah. Well, yeah, you're saying craft, you know, the arc of craft brewing um, has followed the arc of home brewing. And I think home brewing has followed the arc of, you know, craft baking and craft, you know, cuisine, um, slow yeah. cooking. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's moved from saving money and just, you know, doing it to get to go against the man versus, hey, you know, I, I've discovered this really interesting recipe. Or, you know, that guy has, you know, on YouTube has a really interesting recipe. I'm going to try to copy that and see what it tastes like. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I mean, we like this this barrel-aged pastry stout. It was an idea um, we had. And, you know, we just started ta- bouncing ideas off each other, you know, like other collab brews do in, in craft brewing. And uh, we came up with something really cool. But, yeah, going back to mash, mash ton design, I mean, the equipment available today makes it so much easier. Basically the purpose of the mash for those that are new to brewing is simply to provide the conditions, the temperature and the pH necessary for the starches to convert to sugars. And once you've done that, then to get them out away from the grain. Um, So, and that's where false bottoms and efficiency versus manifolds and so on uh, enters in the picture. Mm-hmm. Today's all-in-one systems like, you know, grandfather and such, um, they have false bottoms in them. The grain sits in a pipe. So at the end of the mash, you simply raise the pipe up, rest it on the rim or of the, it, it, it inherently stacks and all the work can drain out and, Doing a no spa, no sparge, that is a no rinse brew that way, is a great way to get a very high quality wort. Um, you end up with less wort volume in terms of what you, the amount of grain you use, and your efficiency drops down to say seventy percent. But you know, grain is still roughly a dollar, maybe a dollar fifty a pound, depending on the variety pretty cheap so we spend another dollar another dollar 50 you know to to make up for that uh loss in efficiency yeah you've got your full boil volume of great tasting first runnings wort you know as like the asahi people to love to say and uh yeah you know you've got great wort and you're going to make a great beer and then you just top off with just normal water in the in the boil kettle i guess to get up to your pre-boil uh, yeah, volume. if it, yeah, you can you can handle it both ways. You can either um, figure out through software or the charts and how to brew how much grain and how much water you need to end up with your boil volume, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with no water additions, or you brew a high gravity wort and then dilute it in the in the boil kettle before you boil. Yeah, yeah. either way. And you can dodge uh, stringency that way. Char, exactly. Uh, how at at the end product? How important is a stringency to avoid? Like, is it one of those things like a contamination where it's just going to kill your beard? You know, you really need to be careful. Or is there sort of a sliding scale with how much is too much? If we well, are going to spar, uh, 
going to give you my lawyer answer, which is it depends. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it depends on, on how astringent it is, really. Okay. Uh, frankly, I don't run into astringency as a problem in homebrew very often. Mm-hmm. Not in 2021. <laughs> Maybe 15 years ago, there was more of that. You know, I, I think to me, the more important thing, and John, I'm curious what you think of this. Whatever your efficiency is, it's more important to be consistent. And yeah. if you're trying to just chase that last, you know, dollar's worth of sugar out of your grain, uh, that's where you end up doing things that can cause astringency. And it, what you've saved a dollar, but you've made some beer that's so mouth puckering and, and so uh, I'm chewing on grapeseed uh, type. <laughs> that it's just not worth, worth drinking. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think astringency sometimes it's hard to – that's the thing that can be hard to pick out because sometimes you can mistake that for other things. Sometimes in a sour beer, for example, somebody might say, oh, that's astringent. But really what you're tasting is, is sourness, like a lactic yeah. sour or something like that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you taste, you know, a quote, astringency, and maybe it might be bitterness, right? Uh, I, I think there's – it's one of those things that other other flavors and other mouthfeels kind of you know are in the yeah. neighborhood so to me to be for astringency to be a problem you've got to really you've got to really go for it man you've got to really grind <laughs> that 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 grain yeah. so fine that there's you, all you that do. husk is gone you've yeah. got to got to sparge that at you know 200 uh and even then you know i i've i've been a listener of the session and of Bruce Strong and other shows for you know, a long, long, long time. And I've heard all kinds of crazy mash regimes and crazy sparge regimes from people, yeah, yeah. Uh, home brewers and commercial brewers who have made excellent beer. So I, you know, maybe this was an issue when Papazian first wrote his book mm-hmm. in the seventies. Uh, I just don't see it being that much of an issue today. Uh, well, and when I it still is, get- you've got to really try yeah, I still get astringent beers in competition, yeah. both homebrew and craft. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, one, two. You know, not it's 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 not uncommon, but it's not common either. You're, you're right; it is it's less common today than it was, um, because I think people understand water chemistry and pH a lot more today right. than they did 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> but it's still there and it's 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 astringency is you know can be various degrees it can be very light you know just a slight drying on the back of the mouth and back of the tongue and it can be very puckering very astringent where you notice it from the first you know sip almost like wine tannin astringency yes um so but yeah with with the brewing methods and our de-emphasis on economy and efficiency, we've moved away from, you know, that over-sparging, over-rinsing of the grain bed, yeah. which tended to result in pH rise and the accompaniment, you know, uh, extraction of uh, tannins. Um, commercial brewers, though, you know, craft brewers, they are fighting the economy, um, you know, the economics of true. the brew. So there is there is the need to understand um, where you know what your your mash liquor ratio is, 
um, you know, to get your running, you know, your first runnings versus your second runnings, you know, dialing one up, dialing one down, um, maintaining pH of the grain bed yeah. through it during, during the water. And it's funny, so many of the, the issues that home brewers have tried to address over the years are, uh, what do you call them, projected issues from <laughs> commercial brewing. Yes, you know, interesting. The things that they have to deal with on a daily basis that really are very minor or unapplicable to the small scale of home brewing. Um, right. So, you know, that's and that that took everyone kind of a while to learn. I mean, um, you know, fly sparging, false bottoms, you know, rinsing, multiple rinsing of grain beds to, you know, improve efficiency. That was the way the commercial brewers did it. So that must be the way we have to do it. Mm. <laughs> and we've learned differently. And you make a good point, John, about the pH, that it's not just about rinsing, that pH is really an important factor. Because when I first heard about decoction mashing like 20 years ago, oh, yeah. before I'd ever brewed an all-grain beer, I read about this decoction stuff. Uh, and I would listen, hear about it on you know, the session or other places and think, you know, wait, you're going to boil grain? You're going to get this? <laughs> yeah, right. Doesn't, isn't that the same? Isn't that how you get astringency? This sounds like a terrible idea. Uh, but then I learned about you know, the fact that it's, the pH is different than if you're just pouring hot water over grain repeatedly. Uh, and the pH is, if, to, to have astringency, you have to have not just uh, a temperature, be really high, but you have to have pH be outside of a, a optimal range to have right. that happen. But ten, tends to be above six. Yeah. Okay. You notice I said optimal range and let you fill that in because I, <laughs> I didn't know what that range was. Smart. Fair enough. That's that's good podcasting. Right yeah, there. we'll make a host yeah. out of you yet, Brian. Don't worry. About <laughs> how does how does a mash tun shape? How does the vessel overall? influence any sort of uh you know flow of of liquid or whatever I mean, we covered a little bit of the the false bottom and how that acts in drawing yeah. the water or the wort but how does that how does the overall shape matter well um it matters in it as far as the kind of laudering device you have so if you have a false bottom um you know, generally then, at least at the homebrew level, homebrew scale, 5, 10, maybe even 20 gallons, uh, the false bottom will adequately, you know, drain the grain bed. Mm -hmm. And we're talking grain beds in the, on the homebrew scale, maybe up to a foot deep, you know, um, hard, hard to exceed that really at the homebrew scale. Um, but when you get to commercial brewing, they're dealing with lotter tons that are, you know, 20 feet across. And a grain bed that it could be two feet or even, you know, more deeper. And so there, they actually have to have multiple pickup points across underneath the false bottom mm, okay. to ensure good flow. And that's where you see in, you know, vintage photos, you see these goosenecks mm -hmm. going into a sink. Yeah. looks like a sink. Anchor Steam has those. Yeah. yeah, those are the the outlets from the multiple pickup points underneath the lauder ton, and they all feed ah. to a common lauder grant. Mm. And so, as the brew as the brewer is watching the laudering process, if they see one really flowing heavily, 
and another flow and not so much, they can adjust that flow, you know, with the, on the, on the gooseneck to, uh, you know, drain more evenly across that grain bed. I because as that. you get into great big grain beds, now you get the channeling problem where you have maybe a, a shallow spot or a spot next to the wall or next to the rake or something where it's a lot easier for water to flow past mm-hmm. and you could get low extraction from the grain near that. So John, let me back up a second. What's the difference between a mash ton and a lauder ton? Ooh, ah, the ever persistent question. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Good question. In home brewing, we often talk about mash lauder tons. That is we put the grain into a cooler. We, hit it with hot water, and then when the mash is done, we drain from that cooler. So it is for, serves both functions as a mash ton and a lauder ton. But in commercial brewing, um, m- most craft breweries have a four-vessel system, at least some of the larger ones do, and, most, and, and larger breweries as well, because that allows you to do a mash and then pump that mash to the lauder ton where you'll sparge it, Meanwhile, you could start another mash behind it. So and that's then, why they do it is for process efficiency on a commercial scale. But right. you're not sitting around waiting. You've mashed, move it on, get the next one in. Yeah. And depending on the system, they could do okay. two mash mashes to fill the boil kettle, or they could you know, boil each batch as it comes along. And just it's a matter of production efficiency, yes. Okay. They don't, they're not. And then, they're not tied to that one. That one ton. No, that's that's really cool. And then, what's a grant? I know what that is. I think, but for mm-hmm. the listeners, a lauder grant is like a large tub, and it's um, you feed the goosenecks, or you feed the outlets from the mash ton from the lauder ton. I should say, you feed the outlets from the lauder ton into this common tub, and then there you pump wort from that to the the kettle and what this does is it acts as a suction break so if you were pumping directly from the lauder ton to the kettle you may start preferentially pulling from one section of the lauder ton closest to the the outlet and again you know differences of flow differences of extraction differences of efficiency you also might have cavitation in your pump or something if you go to yeah. pump and there's nothing there that second, but the grant kind of collects it so that there's always fluid there to pump, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. you can you can you keep that grant, you know, half full and and yeah. pump from there, and it just it it this uh, saves problems. I you know I it just so I've been doing look I've been home brewing since like 1999. Okay. Uh huh. And I ju- it just now dawned on me that loudering is a verb, and the louder ton is a vessel specifically for loudering. Ah, yeah, yeah. I just I never like, I never <laughs> I never figured it out because I also sort of grew up with the mash louder ton, and that's oh, yeah. just in homebrewing we just that's the we use the one term it was a, a slash mash slash it's louder the mash ton. ton yeah you just, yeah. Just yeah one vessel for both yeah right. But I guess I never really figured it out and never really cared enough to ask the question about, well, specifically what, like what? But now, exactly. But now, John, you, you solved my problem. So it sounds like you can have a mash ton that's a fucking triangle. But as long as your false mm-hmm. bottom 
is shaped appropriately. Yep. Yep. So that's kind of good news. We, if we're, we are building a system, we can just do whatever, as long as we're drawing, as long as the sparge water is covering all of the grain and we're pulling that evenly. Yeah. Or even yeah. if, it, even if it's not covering all the grain, as long as, as long as we're, a, we're adjusting for that. So if we want a gravity right. that's 1060 starting gravity, but the way we're sparging, we're getting 1050. Well, either you can break your system down and you can stress about it. You can go, but I need to get this efficiency. Or you can throw two pounds of malt, a base malt in yeah. and try it again. Get it that way. Yeah. See what you get. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you brought up a great point. I mean, so many things we take for granted. And as I was working on the latest edition of How to Brew, I asked myself, you know, well, I know what trube means. I know what kreuzen means, these German words, but I don't know what louder means exactly other than, you know, something to do with rinsing, but that that's sparge. Sparge means to sprinkle in German, something like that. So I emailed a German friend of mine, and he said that um, louder means to clean, clarify, or purify, you know, that kind of meaning. And so what the louder process is a clarification of the word. You know, in the mash tun, you, you, when you draw off that first runnings, it's cloudy. It's got bits of grain. It's got, you know, all that, you know, protein and so on. It's cloudy yeah. coming through. And so you, you recirculate that or Vorloff, as they say, Vorloff meaning preliminary. Okay. Um, and... Uh, so, I mean, you know, the, this was, these lit several, you know, uh, you know, bells in my head too, uh, you know, in terms of, oh, okay, that's why we do it this way. And that's where these words come from. Um, and it makes sense. You know, when you, when you start drawing off the word, you recirculate it, you vorl off it, you clarify it, you purify it, running through the grain bed again, kind of filtering it, mm-hmm. and you get a clearer word out that's the loudering process and i thought loudering and sparging were the same thing yeah no because as slightly different as you're learning homebrewing the language of homebrewing as you just pointed out it relies heavily on the language of german yeah i just figured that louder was was sparging in german or whatever i don't know i just uh, it's why i don't learn too well because i just go i mean i get the gist (laughs) of it i don't really care what it's called but there's a certain like historical fascination with it right right yeah um anything else about mashing uh mash ton design mash flow we should learn or should we take a break and come back and start on fermentation uh we could um i think the the to close the the terms of mash ton design and sparging Mm -hmm. is that you know as a home brewer if you're getting 75 80 percent efficiency that's great you are going to have a high quality wort, very minimal chance of astringency, and um, that's really all you need to worry about. As you move into commercial brewing, you know, 75 could be 80, 80 could be 85, and you're, you know, and as long as you are on top of your game, then your wort will be high quality and you're saving money. Um, 
and as you move up to the Anheuser-Busch level, then then you're talking about 90% plus. Um, But, you know, in it, so Mashton design um, is pretty fluid. Don't get your grain bed too deep. You know, um, six inches a foot maximum is kind of where I think it, it should be. Hey, you could go up to 18 inches and, and in like the Brusillas where you have a tall uh, mash pipe that all your grain sits in, those can be 18, 20 inches. Um, it works fine for that because mainly you're draining. You're not trying to, you're not trying to pump from that very deep grain bed. Okay. Um, and that that's a key key difference there. You want to uh, modern systems we've learned the uh, the the val- value and wisdom of draining versus pumping. Brewing a bag, you know, you step away from that, you're simply in a in a mesh bag, you raise the grain out of out and let that drain back into the kettle mm-hmm. and you start your boil. So, um yeah, very less concerned with efficiency in that case. (laughs) Yeah. That's more ease of use. But again, we've talked about how to add to that and you can even just throw a pound of DME in the boil kettle too. It doesn't have to be the grain. If you You miss your numbers, but generally, generally if you plan on 70% as a, as a number, um, Mm -hmm. you'll be fine. You'll, you'll hit your numbers every time. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Palmer, hang on a second. Char, you can hang on too. I guess that's fine. (laughs) <laughs> it's better that you throw me off of the off of the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Palmer, hang on, Char. We got it. You've you've been voted uh, uh, off off the, off the podcast island. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, all right, everybody, hang on real tight. We're going to be right back. We're going to be talking pressure and fermentation, ester production, maturation, all that kind of sort of uh, you know post mash, uh, post boil stuff like that. Hang on, it's the session, and we'll be. Right back with the great John Palmer and the uh, approaching uh, sort of great Brian Char. Back after this. Well, thank you. Segmented, demented, fermented, fermented. It's the session. Yeah. Thanks for hanging around, everybody. We are back with John Palmer and Brian Char, and we're doing some homebrew stuff today. Maybe a little bit more elevated homebrew stuff than we've done in the past, but uh, homebrew stuff nonetheless. But I think what I want to do is cruise through some of these um, questions on Facebook, Palmer, if that's all right. Sure, yeah. Just do that first a little bit, and then, uh, you know, to break things up. By the way, I started drinking this organic cider from Sam Smith's. Oh, Samuel Smith, I, uh, man, so obviously I went to, uh, you'll have to excuse my painted nails, by the way. My daughter wanted <laughs> to paint my nails, and I said, sure. Of course. Um, I went That's to, what dads do. Yeah. I went to BevMo yeah. the other day and just, like, went wild. Just spent a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I went through, like, the, you know, the, the German aisle, and that's where they have, like, the English beers. And uh, I was like, oh, my God, Sam Smith's Nut Brown Ale. I haven't had a Sam Smith's Nut Brown in, like, eight years or whatever. It's a little sweeter than I remember, but it's still so good. And their cider's pretty good. I mean, I like English style cider, and it's a uh, semi semi dry, I guess. Uh, Sam Smiths are always really good. Tasty, yeah, it's good, especially since they moved to the brown bottles. Those clear yeah. bottles were ass, but the brown bottles, right. yeah, they were. You know, they were pretty good. This is a Twenty First Amendment uh, West Coast IPA. It's their Twenty First Anniversary IPA. Oh, nice! Oh, really? I'm drinking right now. It's uh, quite tasty. I'm. 
not sure what the malt bill is, but it's kind of, kind of a perfumey, pilsnery type of uh, flavor and aroma. Sounds so I'm good. guessing there's a big chunk of, of pilsner malt in here. <laughs> yeah, sounds good, man. Um, pretty tasty. All right. Uh, Ron says, have you ever brewed with spruce tips? I have not, but I've had some amazing spruce tip beers. Yeah. If you're going to brew with spruce tips, make sure you just get the fluorescent green tips, not the branch. Not the branch. Yeah. And I've, I've brewed with um, bran- juniper branches and spruce branches in Norway. Mm-hmm. Different variety than what we have here in North oh, America. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So juniper you know, is not juniper. It's just, it's right. Okay. It's, it's a different bush. And uh, so, yeah, if, if I, I can imagine somebody trying to brew with actual juniper branches here in North America, <laughs> that would be, that would be nasty. Yeah. Um, man. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, you, all you got was a tea like flavor mm, in yeah. the wort with the Norwegian juniper. Interesting. Okay. All right. I love it. Love to see it. Yeah, you want to talk about astringency, you know. Put put yeah. three branches in your mash is probably a good probably as good a way as any to get astringency. Yeah. Uh, just you know, let's throw a whole tree in here and see what happens. Yeah, that's that's a bad idea. Yeah. Right. right. Um Ron again says, What do you think of the new NHC score slash comment sheets from the Nationals? I don't have any experience in this, so I don't really know what he's saying. I um, haven't seen them, unfortunately. Okay. Are these the brand new ones that people were all angsty I th- about? I think from, so. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I did not judge this year, so I would not know. Okay. Yeah. Are they, they're probably kind of GABF-like, maybe? That's what I'm, that's what I'm, my understanding is they're, they're less feedback. Right. Because at that point, you've been through the first round is their thing. But it's also, I don't know. I remember getting them a while ago. I don't know if they've changed since yeah. then, but it wasn't the best. Because it felt like, I mean, you got to tell me, tell me why I, I didn't, I didn't right. win. I don't, you know, I don't want to <laughs> know what you're not tasting. Because at the same time, I've already gotten all that feedback in the first round. So I just want, you know what, you could even forego all of that shit and just, ex- just give me a paragraph as to why. That's why all I didn't want. Win. Yeah, yeah, I don't need a second yeah. round score sheet. Yeah, yeah. But a GABF judging is unique. Um, you've got these pads and i guess in the last year i was there they switched to ipad everything you know you bring your laptop bring your ipad and do it electronically same kind of form Smart. but yeah you know, with the i mean we were doing three rounds in the morning three rounds in the afternoon nine to ten beers per round and trying to fill out you know score sheets or at least comments and check off you know how these things rank um, incredible, you know, time commitment. Um, and so maybe they've moved to kind of the same form for NHC second round. And I can see that. I mean, yeah, you should have gotten your feedback first round. And I think, well, I, I remember reading uh, somebody's blog post saying that, um, you know, NHC has moved away from feedback on your homebrew to being a competition. So, yeah, yeah I mean, a paragraph, you know, an exp- explanation of why this beer didn't place is because there were others that were better or, we, you know, this suffered during transportation or, you know, something that would be, you know, useful feedback. Yeah. Um, 
But I remember, you know, judging both NHC and GABF. And Brian, you can probably echo this is where you, you are struggling to define, determine which one of these two beers is better, you know. And, you know, you fall back on the style guideline. Oh, this one's a little too dark, you know, <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> they both taste amazing, you know, and where, which one do you award this prize to or which one's the winner? It, it can be tough. It's it's really tough. I mean, for anyone that's, ever, that's listening, that's ever entered uh, NHC, uh, I've had the privilege to judge second round NHC probably four or five times. Uh, and it it is it's it's weird to say but it, it's that that intangibles aspect that it comes down to a lot of the time mm. now for some of those beers you will be judging those and think how did this make it from the first round and i in fairness to the entrants and the competitors i think that those beers when you get them and they don't taste good that's either age or a, a hurried rebrew yeah, yeah. Maybe is somehow oxygenated or something. Okay, yeah. Uh, but Bad it's, it, it comes down to like like doing best of show at a big competition. It's the same thing. It comes down to such tiny, fine lines of uh, of what which beer is more close to the platonic ideal of that style. Right. You know, I I was on best of show for the first uh, uh, Sam Adams long shot. Uh, which in, in not national, but in the West Coast here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was on the panel with a bunch of folks who are good friends, who I respect a lot, and I respect their opinion a lot. And we probably went around for two hours, uh, maybe three hours, uh, <laughs> fighting over like two of these beers. And it was the tiniest. Well, this one is just a little bit more. I don't, I don't want to uh, get into the details for obvious reasons. This yeah. one's a little bit more than X that it should be. <laughs> yeah. I, I do, but I don't want to. You know, okay. But regardless, right. uh, you know, it does get into really uh, intangible aspects. And when, yeah. when, you're, when you have the best beers in the country or in the, in the Western Hemisphere, the world in some instances, it, it's really tough to pick who's the best one. Yeah, yep. and I guess it's even harder to explain why is kind of exactly. what you're yeah. saying, I think, too. And so I guess my idea of just tell me why doesn't really – It's not you're not breaking yeah. up with me. <laughs> you're, you're not mm. awarding me a thing. But, you know, and I think, Palmer, you're right where I think they are smart to move away from commentary on your beer. And that was how we originally – I say we, people in the home brewing industry right. like us, eventually helped the um, competition community – by saying, enter these beers for feedback. This is good feedback. Right. But now, right. It, it's not like that because it's, it's overwhelming. And also, we have Dr. Homebrew. So if anybody's listening who Here wants to enter your homebrew for genuine feedback, and it's a Q&A, you get to ask questions from these knuckleheads, email brian at thebrewingnetwork.com. Not Char, but Cooper. Anyway, brian at thebrewingnetwork.com. We'll get you on Dr. Homebrew. Send us your homebrew, and we'll get you on the show We'll talk to you about it, and you can ask questions. Yeah. And after yeah. three rounds, tasting the eighth beer in the flight, good <laughs> Lord, you know, it's just like, yeah, this isn't very good. What should I write? <sighs> it's tiring. You know, That's why I don't the know. The alcohol it. level starts to get to you after a while. I did oh, two, my God. I, I did two I did competitions. I did beer at, at Philadelphia NHC. 
whatever that was probably what like seven or eight years ago ten right. years that was ago. a great one though yeah that was a really great, yeah, great nhc and i was on I, I did but there were 13 different uh american barley wine english barley wine like the strongest styles and no. we're trying our best but by beer 10 we're like showing each other pictures of our kids. But this is my daughter, and this is the thing. Where are your kids? No, we gotta judge more. Uh, and that that's also a, a factor for some of those styles where you have thirteen regions, uh, where everyone's doing their best. But sometimes number thirteen, after you've had twelve already, uh, might not get the best. Someone has to go in last place in that yeah. judging. Someone has to get judged thirteenth, and that may or may not help you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, moving on, one last question, then we'll get to fermentation. I think this will be a good segue. Um, Palmer, this is probably going to be mostly for you. This is from William. He says, "I recently picked up some used corny kegs that are super shiny inside. My other used kegs have never looked that shiny. As long as they're clean, does it matter?" Question mark. If it matters. What is your recommendation for getting them shiny effectively and quickly? I don't know why I said the word question mark. I guess I'm used to voice texting. Um, I'm, I'm going to guess the used kegs are the Chinese kegs because when we got them from, uh, more or the Italian, like they're new uh, as far right, as like not, not soda kegs, but mm-hmm. they're like new manufactured within the last 10 years because they came shiny with like shiny insides. How do you, you do know, that if you that, want to do that? That's interesting. I've I've gotten um, I had a new keg myself that the beer I put into it came out kind of metallic tasting, and um, I dumped that one and brewed again, and it was fine. Um, you don't have to passivate. Number one, that's that's one thing to get out of the way. What you do want to do is take um, dry paper towels and wipe it out if you can. If you can get your arm in there, get your kids to do it. You know, say, hey, kids, <laughs> you can't watch TV until you clean this keg. That's right. Um, you know, dry paper towels, you'll, when you do that and you wipe, you'll, they'll often come out gray. And it's just oxides mm. that are on there. Um, washing them, drying them out. Um, Putting beer, maybe you mean, you know, sometimes you may need to go get some dry malt extract from the homebrew store, make up some wort and let that wort sit in the keg for a couple of days, then dump it out because that will condition the keg. That'll leach off whatever is going to leach off and, you know, take that aroma, that uh, flavor and off, off flavor with it. Um but passivation is not needed. That's that's for sure. Um, clean steel, clean stainless steel, and I mean, you know, water. When you pour water on it, the water doesn't, you know, draw into rivulets. It just it's a solid sheet coming down the panel. That's a clean stainless steel surface. That stainless steel surface is passive. It is clean. It's passive. It's corrosion resistant. There's nothing more you need to do to it. Okay. Well, there you go, William. I hope it answers your question. All right. Let's jump into fermentation. Now, we sort of have a lot to cover on this, uh, and I hope we'll get to it all. But if not, maybe we'll just do this again. Maybe we'll have you on Dr. Homebrew and finish this topic up. I think that'd be a lot of fun, too. Um, So we just had the general topic of 
pressure and fermentation and ester production and maturation were sort of like what we were what we were riffing on on riffing on on and on. But I think we should talk about pressure and fermentation because that has come up a couple of times. I think it even Brian, uh, we talked about it on Doctor Homebrew a couple of times. I think someone asked about pr- uh, fermentation under pressure as far as to drive some more esters for. Saison, I think, or something. I can't remember what the actual thing was, but yeah, I think that was you know maybe a, a few months ago. Yeah. So let's get into that a little bit. What role does okay. pressure play in fermentation, and and do we want that in our beer? Okay. When we talk about pressure in fermentation, we're talking about overpressure. Um, so like capping the fermenter and allowing pressure to build up inside the fermenter Mm -hmm. up to say an additional atmosphere at the most, Um, you know, from 14 PSI to say 20, 28 PSI. Generally you're talking about like just a half atmosphere. So another seven PSI. So taking it from 14 up to 20 or 21. What that does is it increases the amount of dissolved carbon dioxide in the beer. And because carbon dioxide is a waste product of the yeast, um, you know, it's, it slows down their growth. And so that is the effect of pressure on fermentation. It slows down the growth of yeast, okay. both physical growth, um, increasing lag time, if that's what, where you're at, and as well as reproduction. Now, when yeast reproduce, they have a, a, a they need a set of nutrients. They need amino acids. They need fatty acids and other lipids from the wort um, to synthesize nutrients and compounds that they use to grow, just like other living cells. One of those things is called acetyl-CoA, um, or, and it's it's a very short chain fatty acid. Think of it as the smallest Lego piece, you know, that little two piece, you know, two spot mm, Lego piece. Yeah, or the one spot where like it's like a light, it's like a cap yeah. on a thing. Yeah, or that whatever. little bitty yeah. one that you you lose and you step on at like Absolutely, eleven o'clock dude. when your the lights are off <laughs> and you get a glass of water. Oh yeah I, yeah, I know those real well. Okay, so then you know that small Lego piece, it can be used anywhere, and that's what it's used for in the cell. Whenever they're when yeast cells grow they synthesize uh, nutrients that they can't immediately take in from the wort. So they're saying, okay, I've got these amino acids coming in, but I need valine. So I'm going to synthesize valine. Well, they'll grab something else that's coming through the door and tear it apart, throw on some acetyl-CoA and other parts that they have handy to make the amino acid or the fatty acid that they actually need at that moment in time. When they do that, there are other pieces left over. And these other pieces left over are often medium chain fatty acids um, or uh, higher alcohols. And they need to detoxify themselves. They got these, this extra shit in the cell that they got to get rid of. That's where esters come in. Esters ah, are a detoxification okay. step where they take excess um, medium chain fatty acids that, you know, from synthesizing other fatty acids that they need, 
and say, okay, I'm going to take this and take this alcohol that I've just made, put them together and excrete them out of the cell as an ester. Really? It's gone. Yeah. That's I, I how don't think I ever fully understood that. It, it's it's beyond me as a metallurgist, but mm. I've been working <laughs> to understand it these last few years. Yeah. And um, so there's two types of esters. There's medium chain fatty acid esters, which are your like your uh, ethyl hexano, hexanoate, um, which is an apple smelling, apple skin uh, smelling ester. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. And then there are your ethyl esters. And your ethyl esters are formed with these acetyl-CoA short Lego pieces. And when the, when the yeast get to the end of um, the lag phase, they get to the end of the growth phase and they say, okay, um, we're done. We're done reproduction. Now I've got all this excess small Lego piece left over. I'm going to esterify these and get them out of here. Those are your ethyl esters, your ethyl alcohol, ethyl acetate, banana, general fruit, those kind of esters, those get produced then. So it's like, it's like, here's all the, I've stored all this fat to grow and grow and grow. I don't need them anymore because we have, we've somehow figured out that we have enough yeast now to start doing the sugars. So we can, we can lose all this weight. (laughs) <laughs> for lack of a better representation, yeah. we can eject all this. We can jettison it all and then start chewing on stuff. Or maybe it happens simultaneously, I would imagine, I guess. Right. Um, right. And then that's where all this, the banana, like you're saying, is developing as fermentation is happening. Right. Okay. Right. The faster the yeast grow, the more waste products they produce. So right. this is why we talk okay. about, you know, starting cool and then warming up during the fermentation, you know, kind of like the Belgian method where you start cool and then let it free rise. You're right. Because by starting cool, you slow down the rate of growth and you slow down the amount of waste they do. And then as they get rolling, then they attenuate very well. They get, you know, they you reach your final gravity and the maturation period to clean up those byproducts is pretty short especially at a warmer temperature where the yeast are more active. Is that good? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Generally that's good. Uh, So um, let's, let's discuss the opposite way as a contrast. So I'm promoting here uh, what's called the narcissus fermentation where you start cool, allow the fermentation to proceed and then get warmer, free rise towards the end of fermentation Mm -hmm. and do a warm diacetyl rest. Um, And then you keep the beer at that warmer temperature, warmer than your primary, than your initial fermentation temperature. Uh, And that keeps the yeast activity high and then they clean up their byproducts, the diacetyl and the acetaldehyde. Whereas if you start warm, the yeast are very active. They're taking in lots of nutrients. They're reproducing real fast. They're growing. They're generating lots and lots of waste. And now if you started warm and then start cooling that fermentation down in your refrigerator or whatever, the yeast slow down. And they're gonna run out. They're gonna run out of sugars, but they're saying, eh, "I'm too tired. Look at all that waste. Fuck it. I'm not, I'm not gonna do it." <laughs> okay. 
and they don't maturate the beer, or if they do, it's going to take weeks. So that's kind of like traditional vloggering, or yeah. at least the way we, we were doing it, where we would do a primary fermentation at, say, you know, 50 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 10 degrees Celsius, and then start cooling that fermentation down. Right. Well, the yeast are generating lots of waste products. They're growing, fermenting, and then you start cooling them down, and they're not as active, and they're not is you know interested in cleaning up the diacetyl and acetaldehyde. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you've got to wait six weeks, eight weeks for them to clean it up. Now, the thing about a long cold maturation is that you're also doing the clarification part of the brew where you're physically clarifying the beer. The yeasts are settling, the haze is settling, you know, clarification is happening better at cold temperatures. Right. And that's why, you know, traditional lager fermentation worked is because all of this was happening over a long period of time. But in modern brewing, yeah, we start cool, we finish warm, we do a you know a diacetyl rest, and we do you know VDK tests, you know the diacetyl smelling the beer, um, heating it up to mash temperatures, and then cooling down, smelling again, smelling for any additional diacetyl, and making sure that the the yeast have sufficient time to maturate the beer to eliminate those two uh, off flavors, acetaldehyde and diacetyl. And then you go into the clarification stage where you chill the beer, drop the haze, drop the yeast. And that only takes a week to 10 days, depending you know, on other factors like calcium content. And so, you know, you shortened your, your finished lager beer time to something like two to three weeks versus two to three months. When you say, because you're, you're starting to make me pucker uh, down in my bathing suit area. Mm. When you say this, because there's nothing I hate more, well, you know, that's clear, um, yes. than a rushed lager. I don't like it. I, I think I can taste it. But I also think a lot like hazy beers, brewers are starting to learn how to do it better. Because I yeah. have had, like, quote, rushed lagers, but it's like four weeks instead of eight. Yeah. Or, th- or three that are like, okay, I, yeah, whatever. But so when you say start cool and, and, and go warm, how warm are you talking, specifically when we're talking about lagers? Um, depends on your yeast. Okay. But okay. in general, if you say start at 45 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 8 to 10 C, yeah. Um, do that for the first day or two of after pitching and then letting that rise a couple degrees finish the beer at say 55 maybe even 60 degrees fahrenheit do your diacetyl rest at 60 versus 50 that's like a 10 degree fahrenheit or five degree c difference Mm -hmm. um that helps keep that yeast active they were used to working at the cooler temperature and now, and and again, pitching rate comes into play as well. You have to have a sufficient amount of healthy yeast to ferment the beer 
at those temperatures. Uh, and, and the idea is that you're going to, they're going to run out of fermentable sugars before they have stopped reproducing. So there's, they're still ready to go. They're still ready okay. to eat. They're still hungry. Sugars are gone. Ah, byproducts. We can eat those. We can eat the diacetyl. We can eat that acetaldehyde provides us the energy we need. Finish our growth. Interesting. And then, okay, well, there's nothing left. We might as well flocculate and settle out. That's what you're trying to do is you're trying to keep them active up till the job's done. Okay. And then you can clarify, you can drop the temperature and settle everything. And, you know, fermentation is not done until maturation is done. Once maturation is done, now you can chill and clarify. Okay. That sounds like just the, the uh, age arc of human beings, right? Yeah. It's like we're fermenting, yeah. we're still uh, cooking. Oh, we're mature now. We're mm. you know, 50 or 60. We can just chill until we're done. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. How much does the, the actual aging process, and I'm talking, um, you know, the, 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 what, am I, what am I talking about? But, the, the amount of time that the beer is aging cold in, in the old way versus the new way. How much does that play on flavor development? Do you know what I mean? Because if you're, yeah. if you're logging your beer for question. eight weeks, yeah, if you're logging your beer for eight weeks because you fermented cold and kept it cold versus logging your beer for three weeks because you did the narcissist method or whatever it's called, then that's still like a five-week difference. So does that, does that play into things? Yes. And stuff. Okay. One. Yeah. So the caveat to what I've just said Mm -hmm. is that we do not understand the uh, elimination of sulfur compounds in lager beer at this point. Okay. To the best of my knowledge, as the editor in chief of the Master Brewers Association of the Americas and the tech and the editor for the technical quarterly, Uh having read lots of articles, we apparently do not really understand how sulfur elimination happens. And uh, you talk to a lot of brewers that do loggers, and they swear by a long, cold loggering yeah. to eliminate sulfur. Right. We don't know how that works. Um, but just that it, in, that it works. It, that it seems to work. So we're trying now, to figure out a better way to yeah. do it. I guess. Yeah. Okay. So the Narciss method, this is named after Dr. Ludwig Narciss of Weinstaffan uh, um, and, and the VLB there in, in Munich. Um, sure. He, he promoted this as a way to, and he developed the 34, I maybe I'm wrong here. I think he developed, or at least he very promoted the 3470 strain, the Weinstaffan okay. 3470 strain. Okay. Nice which is a great lager yeast. Um, and again, yeah, I, I need to cover myself and say that, <laughs> um, you know, it, when we're talking about fermentations and optimal fermentations, we, we need to specify which, which yeasts we're talking about because they do differ. In general, most lager yeasts will respond to a warm maturation favorably um the 3470 definitely does if if the yeast like say german ale or i'm sorry german lager yeast produces a lot of sulfur dioxide 
and has that burnt match smell in the beer. Chances are a longer lagering uh, time would have helped eliminate that. But we, like I said, we don't really know the mechanism. Um, it doesn't seem to be yeast-driven. The yeast definitely produce the sulfur dioxide, but we're not sure how it gets eliminated. Maybe it gets eliminated physically by venting. Mm-hmm. Maybe it gets chemically reacted with other constituents in, in the wort. You know, oxidation redox reactions with other compounds that are in the beer. Um, not really sure. Uh, oxidation certainly plays a role in sulfur compounds and, and final aromas. And so you were asking wow. about how, how aging affects beer flavor. In higher gravity, more dextrinous words, beers, um, yeah, you know, the oxidation products of some of the alcohols and some, and some of the esterification of the alcohols that can take place um, really adds to the flavor of, you know, Baltic porters and barley wines and so on. In the case of an IPA, it makes that hop character go away. In the case of a ESB or a mild, the how those oxidation character just kill it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a whole, you know, you're entering into a whole nother ballpark when you start talking about aging of different styles and different compositions of beer. But in terms of lager, in terms of talking about diacetyl reduction, acetaldehyde reduction, that is definitely unequivocally a yeast-driven function and occurs better at warmer temperatures where the yeast are more active. Okay. I think I got it. Okay. <laughs> I think. I don't know. It's here. I don't know if I don't know how long it'll stay. <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Shar, what do you think? Do you have any questions for, uh, for Palmer on that whole you thing? Know, uh, I see, I, I I see your wheels turning. Bit. My, my wheels were thinking about like fusel alcohols because when I think high temperature fermentation, ah. I think fusels and they are nasty and they stay. And my, my guess is that the yeast don't reprocess those, that they, they, they spit those out when they're extremely stressed and hot. Yep. Uh, and there's non temperature controlled fermentation and they stay and don't go away. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. And that is another reason why we like to start fermentations on the cool side to slow down the yeast growth rate. By right. slowing down that yeast growth rate, they don't, they don't produce as many fusel alcohols. Right. And they have more time to esterify them as they do produce them. When it's when you're starting warm, fermenting warm, that when that when the temperature is, say, 5, 10 degrees high, you know, higher than normal, mm-hmm. that they're, they're burning through those sugars you know, as fast as they can because it's all, it's all there. They're, they're eager. That's when they're producing lots of fusels. And it takes, to, you know, and if they're spitting them out of the cell to get rid of them so they can eat more, they're not going to get esterified. And that's where you need long maturation times of, say, like, bottle conditioning, barrel aging, and so on right. to, to eventually esterify those fusels um, and, and, you know, make them pleasant. 
Uh, yeah. Easy way to avoid that is to not create them in the first place. <laughs> have have temperature controlled fermentation, and that's that's one of the one of the uh, issues with with homebrew that you know, I don't see as much as I did, yeah. you know, fifteen yeah. years ago. But you still get it sometimes, or people are, are are brand new and they think, "Oh, I'll put this bucket in my closet in the hallway; it'll be yeah. fine." Yeah, uh, and they come back in a day or two, and like, "Well, my beer is already fermented, great," uh, but it tastes like fusel alcohol, like nail yeah. polish and just nastiness. Right, Brian. What, what year did you start homebrewing? Eighteen forty-nine. Oh, uh, it was <laughs> in the twentieth century. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm guessing 91, 92. Okay, about the, the shortly after I did. I started around 1990. Yeah. Um, and the yeasts that we had back then, there were three of them. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, what do we got today? Dry. Yeah, we got like 200 yeasts today. At least, probably. So, yeah, I mean, there are, and that is a big technological achievement. And the, the variety and the stability and the integrity, the, you know, the robustness of the yeast we have today to work with yeah. reduces the amount of off flavors that we would get from our fermentation. So we could ferment higher. I mean, 30 fermentous for 3470 is the closest thing to a bulletproof yeast I've ever used. Hmm. Uh, you know, in terms of makes sense. It you know you can ferment that at forty degrees Fahrenheit. You can ver- ferment it at seventy degrees Fahrenheit and still get a very clean lager-like beer. You know, right around fifty is probably optimal for log- for a clean low ester lager-like beer, pitching rate and so on and so on and so on. But I mean. When the last the last batch of Munich Dunkel I did, um, I I at the moment I don't have refer, uh, fermentation temperature control in my house. I've got my beer fridge which is set cold, mm-hmm. and I've got the Southern California temperate climate, mm-hmm. but that's it. So yeah. the last time I brewed my Dunkel, it was kind of warm, but I thought, well, I'll just use thirty four seventy. It's about 70 degrees. Oh. Should be okay. And it was all right. It's not It's not as good as I would like it to be. I mean, mm. you know, as a seasoned beer judge and experienced homebrewer, I know it's not perfect, but it's very drinkable. It's a 30 instead of a 35? I would, yeah, I would, I would say it's a, <laughs> a 34, 34 okay. as opposed to a 38. That's not gotcha. bad, man. You know, it's, No, that's still really good. And that's a good yeah. point where, you know, people would go, oh, well, John Palmer wrote literally the book on how to brew. I expect all of his beers to be 50s because he knows what he's doing. But sometimes I, I, this, yeah. I pick up this phrase from Jamil. He, he said, uh, the cobbler's children have no shoes. Yeah. Where it's like, essentially, you can teach people and talk about it all day long, but sometimes you don't want to do it. And just because yeah. you have the knowledge doesn't mean that you give a shit. Right. Like, I yeah. know what I'm doing wrong when I'm rushing something or when I don't fully clean the transfer tube. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm risking, and I don't care at the moment. Right, right. It doesn't mean I don't know anything. It just means that I am lazy. I'm a human being like everybody <laughs> else. You, you've made the judgment that, yeah, this this will be close enough. This will this should work. Yeah, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't work, I know why. That's right. <laughs> and I can't yeah, be mad right. at myself. Yeah, um, I remember thinking back to when I started brewing, John. 
or uh, 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 my friend Eric, uh, Eric Thorpe, you may, may have known. I think he was from like DC, MD-11. He was more of the aircraft side of, okay. of yeah. Douglas. Yeah. Uh, he showed me this paper bag he had. He had like these brown little cones in there. And I'm thinking, is this marijuana? Uh, and no, it was hops. And that was how you got hops in like 1991, is they came in a brown paper bag, unsealed, whole cone, and yeah. they were brown and nasty because they've been oxidized the whole time. Right. Uh, so that was uh, just one of those. Yeah, just the quality of ingredients overall, not just yeast today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for it's sure. So light years ahead of what we had available 30 years ago. Yeah, equipment, oh. ingredients, knowledge. I mean, we're no yes. longer, a lot of yes, people right. aren't doing secondary fermentations anymore. And it's like, right. thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, let's take a quick break. Palmsy, and we'll come back and we'll wrap things up by just running through the chat with some questions. Very good. Is that good? I'll see you in a minute. All right. All right, everybody. Hang on. It's the session. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Brewing Network because like beer, radio shouldn't suck. Thanks for sticking around, everyone. We're going to wrap things up here by cruising through the chat and looking for live questions, questions that have come in. But more importantly, I've just cracked another beer, the Hellas from Urban Roots. Whoa, Ooh. nice. I am lucky enough to have uh, a friend called Brad who goes nice. uh, to Sacramento every now and then, and he he knows now. He knows better that, that's to Pete not Holy's come back. Brewery, right? Yep, yep. Nice. And apparently Peter does the loggers and like the saisons and like some other guy does all like the ales. Oh, that's really? what I've heard. Okay. And I don't know if that's oh, nice. true, but like, so the loggers are delish. And then he has, they have a half called the floofster, which mm -hmm. is oh. just like Esther production heaven. Nice. It's very good. It's one of those well-balanced Esther like German hefts. Yeah. Delicious. Nice. Delicious. But yeah, all the loggers, like basically that's all I got. I got a pack of the Czech pills, this fucking Hellas. I got um, mm -hmm. their uh, Me dark Mexican lager. And then mm -hmm. nice. um, the floofs. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's good. I, I love Hefeweizen so much. It is. I never like, did, Francis but. Francis Connor is like one of I my do. favorites. Yeah. This and beer back is good. when Gordon Biersch made like their. Uh, their their Dunkel Hefeweizen, the Dunkless, like about ten years ago. Oh, oh my God! Their their dark Hefeweizen was like liquid crack. I would yeah. go buy like two or three six packs from Safeway like every week, yeah. and I would just drink that that dark Hefeweizen forever. They haven't done it for forever, unfortunately. Yeah, no, it was seasonal, and it was very good. Well, Brian, you know what? Yeah. If you if you happen to come out here, and I still have one of these cans left, I'll give it to you. How about that? Thanks, man. I appreciate that. All right. So Charles says, how important is water chemistry when it comes to making a good beer? And then he says, in parentheses, not pH adjustments. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure what it means, but water chemistry, like some mineralities, I, I suppose, if you're not talking pH, yeah. but doesn't don't <laughs> minerals adjust the pH? They do. Calcium okay. and bicarbonate. And magnesium affect pH. Calcium, magnesium, and bicarbonate are the ones that affect pH. Um, here's the thing about brewing water. Most water will successfully, I mean, almost all water will successfully mash and create wort. 
because the enzymes, the amylase enzymes, actually work better at higher pH than they do at lower pH. But where you get improvements in beer flavor in terms of, you know, during the boil, the boil chemistry, hop utilization and hop flavor is at the lower pHs, the 5.2 to 5.6 range. That's why we shoot for 5.2 to 5.6 in our mash is because the enzymes are working well there. But when you go to the, when you take that wort and go to the boil kettle, the hop character is a little more refined. It's not as coarse. Um, you get a better beer flavor. You get a clearer beer. Protein coagulation is better and so on and so on at lower, a little lower pH versus higher pH. So that's, that's why, that's the main reason we do water adjustment here are those considerations. Secondary to that is your flavor ions, your um, sulfate, chloride, and sodium. So, you know, if, if you know what your starting water is, you know what your water profile is, you can do salt adjustments to boost the chloride or boost the sulfate to accentuate the hoppy beer or accentuate the malty beer and adjust flavor a little bit, you know, flavor a little bit that way. But the secret to water adjustment, or I should say not the secret, but the, the, big, the big banner that everyone misses is you can't change, you can't create flavors that aren't there. You can't add more sulfate to a non-hoppy beer to make it hoppy. You can't add lots of chloride to a hoppy beer, you know, in a single malt hoppy beer to make it malty. It, you know, you're only accentuating what's already there. You're seasoning your food. So I think, I think my sons are burning dinner. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of seasoning uh, food. Yeah. Or, yeah. or just smoking shitty weed. I mean, either yeah. one. <laughs> so, yeah, if you, if you want to adjust water, you need to understand pH. You need to understand residual alkalinity and how that affects pH, wort pH, beer pH. Because beer pH is what affects the final flavor of your beer. A very acidic beer is going to taste thin, but very bright on the tongue. Whereas a higher pH beer is going to taste a little rounder, a little fuller. But if you go too high in pH, that fullness overflows and becomes coarse and mm. broad and, and bleh. Is flabby a, a descriptor for that? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. So many people brew pale ales with high carbonate water, hoppy pale ales, and they love the coarse, harsh bitterness that they get. You know, whereas if you controlled the pH, control, you know, and controlled the wort pH and the beer pH, that bitterness would not be so harsh. It would still be there. It would be punchy, but it would not linger on the palate and it would get you ready for that next drink because you're just like, that was really good. I want some more. And it wouldn't linger and wouldn't build up. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you've got it. People have to be careful when they're adjusting their uh, their water because we've had beers on Doctor Homebrew. I've judged beers in competition that have a character that I always refer to as like licking a rock. 
Hmm. And if you don't know what you're starting with and you just follow blindly some advice to, oh, put in X amount of salt, X amount of gypsum, something, then you end up with a very overly mineral character. Yeah. And that's when you start down that road of water adjustment, you've got to know what you're starting with. You've got to know, uh, be able to measure what you're adding and know yeah. why you're adding it and not just blindly add things because somebody said to add a teaspoon of this and a teaspoon of that. Yeah. The whole Burtonization thing. I mean, people look up the water profile of Burton on Trent. It's horrendous. <laughs> um, the brewers of Burton on Trent don't brew with that water. <laughs> That was the no, well water. Yeah, that was the groundwater test. They brewed with wells that were situated next to the river, so they got a blending, a dilution of that well of the mm. groundwater with the with the river water. Okay, and you know, and so they yeah they got some high sulfate, but three hundred, not seven hundred. You know, right. um, they got calcium a hundred, not three hundred, and that makes all the difference. I mean. Yeah, uh, do do not do not pour a half a cup of Epsom salts in your water to make a Burtonized beer. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Not pleasant. We were trying yeah. at more beer years and years ago. We were trying to to develop these little like kits where it already had the amount. You know, if you start with RO water, yeah, this is the amount that you would add back, and and you combine all those chemicals. And we didn't really know this. Put them in a plastic bag. They started to react and off gas. So the, oh, little, the little bags would like puff. And we're like, okay, oh, well, we God. need to rethink this. And then I think we just abandoned <laughs> it. But um, yeah, wow. and for that That's reason. That's really interesting. Yeah, well, because, and also back then, early 2000s, this is exactly what you're saying, Palmer. Everyone goes, well, Bert, you got to Burtonize it. This is the replicating the, the water. And at, at some point, I, I forget even who, where I heard it from, but at some point, it's like they don't, if you go there, they don't brew with this water. Everybody treats their water. Everybody. Yes. Yep. Just everybody. And that's it. I remember uh, like the guy, Crazy Dave, at the uh, Hop. Hop yard brewing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hop yard. Yeah. He would go, no, Pleasanton gives <clears throat> great water for dark beers. And that's what I was using at the time too. And I'm like, yeah, he goes, no, I just carbon filter. So like for the most part, everybody does, but some people carbon filter, but you know, you're adding sulfates or this or calcium or whatever. You're, you're doing something to your water to change it a little bit. Rarely, if ever, can you just bring it right out of the tap, throw it through a carbon filter and be, and call it good. I think with your yeah. darker beers, you can, but like lighter beers and pale ales. So for me personally, I, I have a hard time brewing anything like under like 20 SRM or whatever. Darker mm. beers, I can do pretty well. Lighter yeah. beers, pale ales never have that, that hop pop. They never have that crispness for me. And I know it's because of my water. Yeah. I just know it is, but I'm t- I don't care enough to learn about it. It's what it comes down to. I just don't yeah. care. You know, I that's um, I brew a lot of um, amber beers myself because hmm. that's what LA water is suited for. Yeah. When I do brew pale beers, I have to go to the grocery store and buy you know three four containers of distilled water and then build it from there. Mm. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, Richard in the chat says uh, he says I'm on several Facebook homebrew groups and i have to say some homebrewers out there have equipment that can only be described as professional brewing equipment <laughs> when does homebrewing become professional or what defines a homebrewer and i know he's not asking specifically for our feedback or, or a definition of a homebrewer but i thought it was interesting because 
sort of ties into the whole things have fucking changed. Like yes. you go on yeah. Instagram and there's just all of these dudes with just stainless kitted out everywhere. You don't see a piece of copper. Right. And yeah. back you in my day, plastic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The plastic uh, fills false bottoms. You know right. what I mean? Uh, You're like, oh, whoa, uh, someone uh, made these uh, out of, you know, plastic. Wow. And then now it's like, bro, I got a fermentation jacket. <laughs> for my stainless you, whatever. Your brew system's not titanium? Where have <laughs> yeah. you been? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can hide in this thing in a nuclear attack and I'd be fine. I just can't come out. I ordered mine for out of vibranium right from Wakanda because that's <laughs> totally not uh, reactive. And mine's better than yours. There's a certain amount of dick measuring at a certain point uh, mm. with some of that stuff. But, I mean, just, I'll just jump in first year for a second. You know, I've known people that have made fantastic beer on amazing 20-barrel systems at home. They've made themselves, uh, and they've you know built pieces and this and that, that they've bought the whole thing, that they've made amazing beer on the stovetop with a freaking pasta pot and stuff. Your, your equipment doesn't define how good of a brewer you are, and your equipment should reflect like how you like to brew and how much you want to brew. Like we were talking at the very beginning of the show, I'm, I'm done brewing 10 gallons at a time. Yeah. That, that yeah. ain't going to happen. Yeah. I don't have, when my daughter was real young, we used to have a big party for people from daycare, like literally once every three, four weeks. And people would drink 10 gallons of beer because we'd have 50, 60 people over. Yeah. Uh, I don't have that kind of people coming over to my house anymore. <laughs> and then slowly uh, so, everybody's kids started looking the same. And I don't know why. I know, why. it's amazing. <laughs> but uh, we all shared genetics. Tell you about the time that I had the Baltic Porter that I, I won the People's Choice at NCHF uh, like 10 years back, uh, 12 years back. And uh, despite all my warnings and all the 10% and exclamation points and verbal warnings, I can't tell you how many uh, moms and dads were asleep in my living room at the uh, <laughs> end of Friday night. Like, ah, oh, you guys got to go home. You got to get. You got to get out now. Yeah, uh, take a you cab. Know, you your equipment reflects like, or if you plan to enter a lot of comps, right? If you're the type of brewer that likes to enter, you know, fifty comps a year, you're going to make ten gallon batches. Uh, but it doesn't. You know, if you if you understand fermentation, if you understand sanitation. If you understand the basics of recipe formulation, you're going to make good beer regardless of the hardware you use to do it. Right. And then that the hardware used to do it becomes a matter of personal choice and what you what you want to focus on as a brewer. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I love my 10-gallon system, but yeah. the amount of time it would take to clean it up afterwards was just a pain in the ass. It's too oh, much. yeah. That's why that's an hour. That's an hour, hour and a half cleaning yeah. up when you're done, and you've already had a long brew day outside with that that propane tank. It's a fun yeah. brew day. Yeah, but you've it, had to heat up all that water and then brew, and it then it's became, like dinner time. It's like, oh crap! I still have to clean all this. Yeah, it became yeah. work. It became a yeah. job, and yeah, and that's why I like the the shift towards more of a semi automation or an automation. I'm sad Pico Brew went under because yeah. they were they were putting out. I mean, they had they had problems. You know, problem. like every good startup, product, but good yeah. product, but it gave you your life back. And that's why I like the yes. Brazilla because it's fast and under six hours, you can do five gallons. 
Mm-hmm. I like it. And, and it one was vessel easy to clean up. One vessel. And yes. it was great. It, it is great. So um, I like that sort of shift for me personally. But I also like that there's probably infinite number of ways to approach mashing and fermentation. Right. You know? um, Tuck in the chat says, if we want to understand astringency, what would we spike our beer with to know, oh, that's what astringency is? <laughs> Suck on a plain Lipton tea bag. <laughs> and by well, tea bag, I take, mean. Take the tea bag, uh-huh. put it in your mouth. Tea bag yourself. That's astringency. Call your best friend and have them mm. tea bag you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, or if you have like oak cubes or something, hey, yeah, a chunk of wood. That's a good way to go too. Is there is there something he can put in his beer? Because I have a feeling he wants to know what it tastes like within like the malty hoppy concoction of whatever whatever style he's made. Um, take some because uh, you put like a tea bag in, you're going to get tea flavor. Yeah, if you take um, oak, like Brian said, boil that in some water. And oh, then yeah. add that tincture to the beer, that'll give you. A, or that. what if you took just a handful oh, yeah. of your of your mash after you're yeah. done sparging? Just take yes. a handful of that and throw that in some boiling water, and then steep that, and then and then pour that out, and then you can taste yes. that, and maybe Ooh, that's a good idea. Dose your beer yeah. with that. That would that, that would also you just taste that that spent grain tea. Mm-hmm. That would be a very good indication of yeah. astringency. Yeah. Uh, and then Danny says, is it possible to get a list of BJCP homebrew judges? I feel like no. I feel like that's just a hit. That's a hit. <laughs> well, that's, I'm, I'm that, pretty sure that BJCP.org has a list of the active oh, roster okay. somewhere. Oh, because I was going to say, that oh. sounds like a knock list or like a wet list or whatever. Like um, someone's going to come but, knocking on my door in about yeah. three weeks and yeah, uh, bust got, a cap in my ass like before 5, I can move to my new people. house. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, are there any levels of certification, like with Cicerone? Yes, of course. Like, oh, yeah. there's Recognize, yeah. which, is, which is me. Then there's Grandmaster a Million, which is Brian Shar. Mm. And <laughs> there's various levels in no, between. I'm no, not, I'm, not, I'm not Dave Techum or one of those guys that really works his ass off. But you're off. Grandmaster 3. Just a 1. I'm Just a, a one. 1. Oh, okay. Well, then fuck you. Why did I get you exactly. on the show? Yeah, I'm only, <laughs> I'm only certified because I've just never found it worth my time to take the test to hit national but i've been judging for 30 years you know yeah (laughs) yeah i that that's the thing right like i was national for a long time and i was pretty happy being national and i kind of got to a point maybe about 10 years ago of you know i'm gonna try to make the push and be a master then once you're master there you go it's easy to kind of move up to grandmaster at at, at that point i I really I do think that you and, and Brian Cooper need to talk to BGCP folks, and you guys need credit for the shows, for Dr. Homebrew shows. I we, mean, you joke about it, but yeah. hey, I'm, I'm all for getting some Grandmaster service points for doing the show. You should, because it's, it's furthering education, and you're, yeah, you're, exactly. you're literally judging four beers every month and providing feedback. I mean, there's no, it would be complete nonsense for someone not to recognize that. Yeah. And we're but. trying to put, it, put accurate and good information out to people about... Yeah about beer and the competition process and encourage people to take part. Well, I think, and I think we do that because of the feedback, because of the, the, the brewer is on the phone. Yeah. So we get to learn about it too. So anyway, yeah. um, so we'll, 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 maybe Cooper and I will chat about that. He's he a should do. Uh, BJCP rep and maybe we'll see what he can do for us. Yeah. Um, get, uh, get Gordon strong on the phone. Uh, Rob, uh, Ron says, what do you think of these podcasts that do experiments each week and almost always conclude that nothing really matters at the homebrew scale? 
And I well, figured this would come up, and I'm pretty excited yeah. about it either way because I have my own opinions. But what do you think, yeah. Palmer? I mean, Brewlosophy is an example. It is a great site. And um, what's interesting, you know, what's interesting to me is that half of what I say in How to Brew has been contradicted or at least not borne mm-hmm. out by the experiments that they do. The short and shoddy brews, for example, uh, are an interesting indication of, you know, there's a lot of robustness in the brewing process where you can do a half-assed brew, but if you're hitting all the right points along the way, it's going to be a good beer. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like you don't need to obsess over things like extraction. Right, right. Just as long as you're not getting off flavors, you can yeah. adjust on the fly later on, and you're and you're yeah. you're going to make it okay. So much of what I obsess about, and probably what you guys obsess about in Doctor Homebrew, is putting out the best advice possible. What's the best practice that you can recommend to somebody mm-hmm. to make good beer? And you know, even so, even if they don't follow that best advice to the letter they'll get 90% and they'll brew a good beer because we're trying to help people brew good beer. So um, I'm, I'm addressing for an article I'm writing for an Australian magazine, kettle souring and um, the pre-acidification of the, of the wort to 4.5 to prevent, you know, the growth of enteric bacteria and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And the short boil before chilling and so on. I mean, um, all of this is recommendations to produce the best beer possible to, to the highest chance of success. But you go to a number of commercial breweries, they don't do those steps because they know from experience from, you know, if we do, if we hit our pitching rate and we hit our time period between, you know, this temperature and pitching rate and this temperature, we're going to be fine. You know, it's going to acidify fast enough. The head retention is not a problem. You know, growth of external bacteria is not a problem. It, it will be fine. And we can skip those steps. So I guess, I mean, that's a roundabout way of answering that guy's question. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of have a few thoughts, but we don't have a lot of time left. And I guess like that, that, that show is really entertaining and engaging. Uh, but something has to matter at some point. Otherwise, you throw like a baseball and three cans of orange juice concentrate in an aluminum uh, uh, bucket, and you're going to get a stout three three weeks later. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just something has to matter at some point. Yeah. Uh, and it gets views and listeners when you say, when you burst people's bubbles above what they expect. I, yeah, I like Marshall. I think he's a good dude. He's very smart. He's fun to listen oh, yeah. to. I love having him on the show. I, but And I've said this to his face on, on our show, because I feel comfortable on our show, um, that I, I think a lot of these things are subjective. You know, you can have a, a sample size of 20 people or 15 people, but there are 15 people at the bar. Right. And, and I know, and I think he said before, uh, either that I'm putting words in his mouth, so I apologize, but it's like when doing all these, you do have a hard time finding a sample size. Sometimes you get 12 people tasting a beer and it's like, okay, well then if you're not at a certain statistical range of, of the flavor mattering, then it doesn't matter. 
and he'll be the first to say, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't do this thing or that you should do this thing. He just means that when we did this thing, whatever it is, the result didn't matter to most people. And I think that's what a lot of people miss with his shows. Yeah. It's that it's not, he's not saying definitively never do this ever again, whatever this is. Um, but that you can skirt the issue or you don't have to maybe worry about it. And I think if you look at it like, like have fun with homebrewing, you don't have to chase the 50 point score. If you want right. to chase scores, right. then you can definitely do that. But there are certain things that you can reduce the stress on about uh, with, with about your brew day that you'll still make drinkable beer in the end. And I think yeah. that's really, I, I, that's what I think. And I haven't said this specifically to him, but I think that's in general what the spirit of brewlosophy is. That, that's a very good synopsis, I think. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like so many things in life, driving, education, you know, career. We recommend, we give advice to people. And from that, we hope there's a couple of takeaways that will help ensure their success. They don't have to follow everything to the letter, you know, to get something That's right. perfect. Okay, I do want to get through all of these. We're getting comments as we talk, and we don't have a whole lot of time. So let's run through these real fast. Uh, Four-hour okay. show, JP. Let's I won't, do it. I can't, Four hours. <laughs> I can't do it. I told Palmer 630, and it's already 7. So That's all right. Um, let's, do, let's do one here real fast, Palmer. And, um, it's from Scott. He says, when you see a sample water profile, uh, fuck, that, that includes HCO3 minus. Okay, bicarbonate. Thank you. But you're using RO water. Do you okay. ignore HCO3 or do you add NaHCO3 to obtain those levels? Does HCO3 in your brewing water add character to the beer? Yes, that, that's a good question. Okay. So um, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer you to the brew cube in chapter 22 of the latest edition of How to Brew. Perfect. Which is a Rubik's Cube kind of thing. And I may be able to throw it up on the screen real quick. Maybe not. Probably it's not worth it. But anyway, yeah. what we're doing is we're saying that residual alkalinity, the, in other words, the amount of bicarbonate in the water corresponds to the color level of the beer. Pale beer, you don't want bicarbonate. That would be your RO waters. For amber beers, you want some bicarbonate because the amber specialty malts are providing some amount of acidity uh, to the mash. And for dark beers, you want a, a decent hefty amount of bicarbonate in the water because, again, they're balancing the amount of acidic specialty malts that are in that grain bill. We're always shooting for that 5.2 to 5.6 mash to pH range. So that's that's why... If you're if you're looking at a water profile for a classic brewing city, look at the kind of beer that comes from that city. Is it a pale amber or dark? Look at the amount of alkalinity and say, is that amount of alkalinity versus the hardness, the calcium and magnesium, uh, is that appropriate for that color? And that's where residual alkalinity comes in. And please read the book and I'll explain it better there. Um, but yes, you may want to add baking soda, for example, to your RO water to brew particular styles of beer, such as ambers and darks. 
Okay. All right. Um, this is a, this is very Terry. Can you guys talk about how to get good hop aroma in an IPA? Generic thoughts for how much aroma is from dry hopping, how much is from late addition, etc. That's a show. That's an entire, yeah. that's a book. That's at least a chapter in a book. That's the new IPA book by our good friend. Damn it. Um, Mitch Steele? Scott. Scott. Oh, Scott J- Janish. There you go. Scott Janish. And the only reason I know that is because I fucking edited that show, and it was a good show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pick up that's that book from book. Scott Janish. There, that, Terry, that's a great question, but there's a lot. Um, you know, dry hopping, you get different aroma than a late edition. And so yes. it depends on what you want. And that's really, you know, all that there is to say about that. Um, I mean, if you want to have a lot of hop aroma, I think you'll... You, Shit, go for it. Just put it in. Late, put late hops in. Whirlpool them. Dry hop it. Yep, they're all going to be different. If you want to have it be super aromatic, just keep jamming hops in everywhere from five minutes before the end of boil until the time you bottle it. <laughs> That's right. Um, Ron wants to know, John, are you working on a new book? And it blows his mind how much brewing information you know. Well, thank you. I I am working on a new book slowly, sporadically called How to Brew in Your Kitchen. Small batches, simple, on the stove. Um, Yeah, that's it's kind of it's going to be kind of like an intro to how to brew. You know, this is is going to be a very large book. It's a super large book. You know what I would love? Maybe in that. Well, I don't want to say like in that book or maybe it's split off, but would be like a, a a book or a show or a series or something focused on, you know, median income of like 60 grand and up. Where it's like folks like us who are like, well, you know, I have $300 I can throw at a Brazilla. How the fuck do I use this? Yeah, yeah. How do I do that? You know, where that, it's like, I want to know the science. Be this book. Oh, good. It's okay. going to be how to brew on your stove, how to brew in your kitchen, as well as the small all-in-ones, you know, the... Brewing for the apartment dweller. Okay, because yeah. and and this is where this is where I'm stuck in my knowledge is when you said brewing at home, I instantly thought three and a half gallon kettle, extract, and that's it. Like I didn't think anything beyond that because like we're just we're moving so fast. But I yeah okay good well see there you go so I I yeah, I, I get I get at least ten percent off off the top of your your yeah. gross for that I'm idea. Try, I'm gonna try to keep it to about one hundred and twenty pages. Okay. I think and you know what's good. funny is it's kind of like how people that get interested in brewing, how we all start. And then yeah. kind of as, as we get older yeah. 30 years later, and maybe, and partly why I wanted to start brewing smaller, aside from drinking a lot less, is, you know, in 10 years, I'm going to be in my mid-60s. I don't want to be schlepping out a giant system from a shed to the backyard, right. lift it up, this and that. And it's like, I, I'm not sure I, I want to do that. Yeah. Uh, and the kids, the so kids are going to move away from spaces. home. There's going to be yeah. no one to carry that. You know? right. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's going to be no one to steal it from you. Hmm. Um, uh, Ron in chat says, has John noticed any difference between the dry and the liquid 3470? Which I think is an excellent question. Because for that years that mattered. Question. And I don't think it matters as much anymore. Probably doesn't. I, I actually have not brewed with the liquid 3470. Okay. I've always done dry. All right. Well, there you go, Ron. John does not give a shit about figuring it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, uh. Um, 
Danny, this is a comment to my secondary. If you don't do a secondary fermentation, how do you get your beer off the dead yeast and get a great dry hop? To be clear, there is no secondary fermentation in secondary fermentation. It, it's just a clarification process in which you could do that or buy a conical fermenter. Yeah. Yeah. There was this this thing like 50, there was a big issue I would see in judging like 15, 20 years ago where there'd be like a lot of off flavors and wordiness and stuff that came from there was this fear of, oh, God, I cannot let my beer be on top of this yeast yep. for more than it's going to all have autolysis flavors. Uh, and it was almost a terror of autolysis yeah. that if you're temperature controlling, that doesn't happen for like a month. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not temperature controlling, you need to be temperature controlling. But you would have people like drop their uh, primary into a secondary after like three days. Like, oh, I don't want to have autolysis of my beer. And they'd create other problems that came from uh, incomplete fermentation and you'd get acetaldehyde and yeah, yeah, it just was not, not a good thing. So I just, unless, as you're saying, uh, JP, unless you're trying to brew a really clear lager and part of your process is to go to a secondary just for a couple of days to clear it out, and maybe you combine that with some gelatin fining or something else, there's really no need to go to a secondary. That's right. Yeah, I, I do, when I brew lagers, and I do brew them, you know, once once a year or so, um, everything, you know, the whole fermentation and maturation happens in that single fermenter. Then I rack it to a keg, and I carbonate it, and chill it, and it clarifies. That would be technically considered the secondary fermentation but mm-hmm, or the right. lagering but no it is strictly clarification at this stage yeast settling out hay settling out done would um, it... fermentation happens when the yeast are warmer yeah, yeah. I, I had this conversation with jamil like 15 years ago that i just i am strong i just i do not believe in secondary fermentation it's one more step that you can introduce bacteria or wild yeast into the process, every time you touch that uncomplete beer, you're risking some kind for of sure. contamination. Yeah. And unless there's a powerful reason for it, just don't do not do it. It's yeah. not a good idea. In general, you don't need to do it. And you know what? I'm going to no. gonna toot the horn of Christopher Graham because he was the one who sort yeah. of like, you know, brought that to my attention because when I'm working there, I'm still learning. Um and then I just brought it to the brewery network. And I remember getting into like literal arguments on the shows early on mm. about how you don't need to do secondary fermentation. Of course, I was an I asshole. About, too. Yeah, of course, I was a dickhead about it. I was a big mm. fucking bell end and be like, well, fuck mm. you. Um, <clears throat> but I was on your side, though, in those shows. You, don't need, you didn't need to do it. You didn't need to do it. And then now it turns out it's, you know, it's funny. I'm just I'm just going to I'm just going to do this like. It's weird how influential, <laughs> like the the you know we've all of us have sort of like been. Yeah, it yeah. sounds really stupid to say, and I, I probably should edit this out. But it's like mm. it's stuff that we've been talking about because we've been doing it for so long. And it's not yeah. that it's not that we're smarter than anybody else. It's that we've been doing it for longer than most people, and therefore we have seen the the, the ups and downs of what is popular and what's not. And then sort of what everything shakes out in the bottom is, you know, cheap stainless steel. And not worrying about shit, and that's yeah. how you have like the maximum fun. That's like the the yeah. inverse curve, no Venn diagram, maybe of brewing, yeah. where it's like you have one circle that's fun, 
one that's stainless and one that's not giving a shit. And in the middle, they all combine to form like a good time being a home brewer. That's like full um, yeah. Okay, last, last one. This is from Patrick. So if I got lazy and didn't clean my beer draft lines, could I infect my entire keg? Yeah. Okay. How does that work, yep. though? Because if there's pressure building up, I imagine it's like electricity where there's just the, the wires are live and you just got to flip the switch for the electricity to go in at the, at the, at the, at the faucet. So yeah, how does well, it... the, the contamination can go from the faucet to the beer line. And from the beer line... Because there's no close in the beer line. It's just that the faucet is closed, but from the beer line to the bottom of your keg, it's just one continuous... Yeah, yeah. All right. And it's under pressure, but, you know, that stuff, if it gets in that keg valve, then there's, you know, there's microscopic ways for it to enter. And possibly when that valve is open, all it takes is a few to get in, and then they start multiplying. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, look, I think that was it. This has uh, been a good show. Palmer? It's been fun. Thanks, man. How can people learn more, a little bit about uh, how to brew or what you're doing or anything you want to you know, sort of throw out there? Oh, um, I, try to, I try to post to Instagram and Facebook once in a while, but I suck at social Oh, you're social terrible media. at it. No, you never yeah. post anything. except <laughs> it, You know what? When you post is what, here's what I'm grilling, and that's uh, it. Yeah. Which is, not, which is fine, but it's like... What does John Palmer do? What's John Palmer's day like? This is this is what I tell every brewer who I talk to about social media. It's like I don't want you to use Instagram as what your fucking tap specials are or what Taco Truck is showing up. I want to know what it's like working at your brewery. That's oh, why that's I follow you. You know what I mean? I don't don't use yeah. I don't like it when people use it as a an advertising platform solely. You have to pepper that in, but it's much more of an intimate intimate look like i want to see your homebrew setup i want to see a picture of your mash tun i want to okay. see you homebrewing yeah. i mean i also want to see you grilling because you know i'm yeah. a dude and dudes rock but yeah mm. this past week i've been in the forge i've been making a kukri knife i want to see this john wow. this is Doing what i want Damascus to see steel and stuff yeah this is what this is no the exact shit. seriously and you know yeah. what i want you to do i want you to set up your webcam <laughs> And I want you to fucking live stream it on Twitch yeah. or or whatever or on Instagram Live. This is what I uh-huh. want for you. I okay. want to see you I working. Mean, John, in the you're forge. a metal. I really this do. This is like right in your sweet spot here, making this yeah. cool ass knife with Damascus steel. That would be really interesting. Seven o'clock this morning, I had I had the knife in a ferric chloride bath with electrodes wired wired up to it and trying to get the Damascus pattern to pop out and I ended up wow. copper plating it instead. Uh, so I'm, it's like, okay, I can't use uh, copper electrodes now. But, uh, um, uh, okay. That's hilarious. Yeah, I guess it's sad, but it's I don't understand too. it. I just, all I know is you fucked up and it makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. This right. is, this is what I want. This is what I want, John. We'll okay. talk. We should talk about how to, how to, how to make your profile pop. Cause, uh, that's what I need. If I need. That's what I need. Oh, man, my okay. stepson is totally into knives, and if you knew you were making, like, some Damascus steel knife thing, he would be, like, live streaming you, like, as many hours as it took to get done. That's what I'm saying. This is what, this is what uh, people need. Um, all right, Palmer, thanks, man. I appreciate it. So, howtobrew.com, I, I imagine, yeah. his website. Yeah. Follow John Palmer on Instagram. I imagine look John Palmer. Yeah. It's like how to brew underline the John Palmer, something like that or something. Okay. I forget. I, I think if you just enter into the search bar, how to brew Palmer, 
you'd probably get what you were looking for. There you go. Yep. Yeah. All right. And then Brian Shar, thank you very much, man. I appreciate you. Uh, why don't you throw a plug out there? Why not? It's a session. Who cares? Oh, thanks. Hey, if you guys, anybody out there looking for a uh, IP attorney, crosspodlaw.com. Uh, if you want to hear about some good uh, uh, homebrew judging and of good and or bad homebrew, listen to Dr. Homebrew. <laughs> good and or right bad homebrew. Network. Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, I'm, I'm saying I'm always saying this. This is so true. I'm always saying this. Um, we want bad beer because oh, this yeah. is how we learn. Not us, but it's how you learn. So if you have a shitty beer, people go, oh, I want to send in beer, but it just sucks. Like, good. If you, if, unless you already know yeah. how it, oh, it yeah. sucks. If you know why it sucks, don't fucking send it. But uh, if, you, if uh, you don't know why it sucks, then this is what we're here for. So send it in. Um, go back to one of my very first times I ever judged. If your beer tastes like rosemary and dirt, and you don't know why, send it in. Send it in. That's right. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much to our sponsors, of course. Title sponsor here being More Beer. Go to morebeer.com. Um, thanks, of course, to Palmer and Shar. And uh, for everybody listening on Facebook, we really appreciate it, too. And uh, until next time, we'll see you guys later. Justin's in my sky and winning the race. JP does great as his charity care.